Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. Remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our very special guest is Joe Heschmeyer. Joe is an instructor with Holy Family School of Faith team out in Kansas City. He was a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. Before that, he was a litigator in Washington, D.C., and during his time in seminary, he earned his degree in theology from Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, otherwise known as the Angelicum. And Joe, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, you wrote this really interesting book, and I don't think you could have worked out the timing any better had you tried. It's called Pope Peter Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of things, uh, a lot of discontent about things that uh, the current papacy, Pope Francis, has said or alluded to. And you really begin the book with, with one of those issues, and you end the book kind of at least acknowledging that there really is a challenge today. And it really is. And then in between, you know, between when we scheduled this and now we're talking, you know, the McCarrick report came out. And so we also see that, you know, the popes aren't perfect, are they? No, they're not perfect. And, and you know, like you said, uh, this book, I mean, it came out beginning of the summer and since then it's kind of been like one thing after another. There was Pope Francis's comments about same-sex unions and now there's the McCarrick report, which... Uh, has a less than flattering uh, picture of I think St. John Paul II and yeah really three really three popes well. if you look if you, I've read most of it yeah. and it's not, and none of the three come off looking like stars no they don't uh, and so it is it is a time where a lot of people are asking hard questions about the papacy and I think at the same time people are asking ordinary Catholic well why are you still Catholic and I think that's a really good question to ask and I think it's a question that as Catholics we should embrace that opportunity. To really share, like, well, why are we Catholic, and what does the papacy have to do with that? Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and just because, uh, and you, and, and again, you start off the book talking about the Zika virus, and then the controversy regarding contraception, and did he, did the Pope say that, or didn't he say that? And you know, things tend to be with him very ambiguous, and we don't always get the clear meaning, although we think we do, and usually we're right, unfortunately. Um, but we really do need to know our faith and live our faith and love our faith so that when we hear something that sounds like a tune that's a little off, then it, it should kind of raise uh, raise the bar or raise uh, you know our attention in terms of, hey, that doesn't sound right, but then we need to be able to understand also the purpose of the papacy. Right? And I think you do a great job in this book talking about the purpose of the papacy. Why is the papacy so important? Yeah, so I think the maybe the easiest answer to that is it is the distinctive Catholic doctrine, meaning like there are more important teachings. There are teachings, you know, like the divinity of Christ or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Those on a cosmic scale matter more, but those questions don't tell you whether you should be Catholic or Orthodox, uh, for instance, or, you know, on the divinity of Christ, Protestants believe in that, you know, so like, if you want to know, well, why should I be Catholic as opposed to anything else? The one issue you really need to look at is the papacy. Because the one thing that if you believe in the papacy, you should be Catholic. Like if the papacy is true, everyone should be Catholic. If it's not true, 
nobody should be Catholic. So that makes it a pretty darn important issue for knowing whether or not to be a member of this church. And that's a question that's of more than fleeting importance, because Jesus says at the Last Supper, we should all be one. So if we want to know, like, well, where should we be one? Should it be under the authority of the Pope or somewhere else? Well, then we need to look at this ad, like this question and, and answer it really carefully. Yeah, and I think you did a really good job of of doing that and even giving, you know, the church's teaching on this. You went through a lot of scriptural things, and then you went into what Protestants believe. And, and it, it's amazing when you read this book how much time and effort that Protestant denominations have gone into to dispel the papacy so that it justifies their current position. Yeah, one of the things I was kind of motivated by when I was writing was a lot of times when I hear an argument, especially if it's about something I don't know much about, I'll be thinking like, wow, that sounds really good, but what would the other side say to that? You know, like if you're hearing a political debate and you're saying, okay, well, that, you know, that guy makes a lot of sense. What would his opponent say to that? And and it can be really frustrating because you, you have these cases that seem like just total slam dunks. And then you find out like, oh, they didn't really represent the other side well. So I tried to uh, really find some of the best arguments that these Protestants had put together against the papacy and really engage in that so that hopefully uh, it's not just like a straw man version. Like hopefully it's like the best Protestant arguments against the papacy and why those still aren't ultimately persuasive. Like why there are still good Catholic answers to that or why, why those, you know, even very thoughtful kind of critiques maybe miss the mark in some way or another. I really like, you know, throughout the book in different areas, you compare the church to marriage. And one of the things I want to read from, it says, it is sinful folly to imagine that our job is to invent new forms of marriage. But God also designed the church, and so our job ought not to be to create new churches or denominations and ways of being, the new ways of being the church. I mean, scriptures are pretty clear, and when we start tinkering with it and coming up to what we want, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Yeah, I was—so that argument, I, I really was inspired for that by something I was reading from one of the evangelicals that focused on the family. And their argument against gay marriage was like, hey, marriage isn't something we invented. Like, you can't find a point in human history where, where you don't see marriage. It seems to be something that's uh, connected with us as a species. You fight it in every culture, et cetera, et cetera. But there's good reason to believe— that God created the structure of marriage in some way, shape, or form. Well, the evidence is even clearer on that for the church. Like, Jesus says outright, I will build my church in Matthew 16. So, <laughs> for all the same reasons why we don't get to redefine and recreate marriage, because it's not ours to create in the first place, that's even more true of the church, which isn't us getting together for God. It's the shepherd gathering his flock. It's him calling people together in a flock of his creation, and of his choosing, and not of ours. So I, I use, like you said, I use that marriage motif a lot throughout it as well, uh, because it's also a good way of understanding, like, all the, all the problems we have right now. You know, I think there are sometimes uh, these two camps we can fall into. One which says, like, let's pretend the problems don't exist. Let's take, you know, the best possible example or interpretation, even if it's implausible, and the other extreme says kind of like, let's focus ex like excessively on the problems and really kind of drive people to despair. And it's like, well, neither of those are right. In the same way that in a marriage, you wouldn't want to say like, hey, let's ignore our problems completely. <laughs> we also wouldn't want to say like, 
let's focus on our problems excessively and just talk about it in a really discouraging way that doesn't do anything and, and maybe just leads people to divorce. Like neither of those are the right answer. There has to be some way of saying like, yes, this is a marriage. Yes, we're in it in the long haul. And yeah, there are real problems, and let's let's see what we can do to kind of tackle those problems. Well, on the other, I think that's a good model. Yeah, yeah, and the other part of marriage, and you bring it up too, is look, somebody end up ends up having to make a decision, right? If everything's fifty fifty, you could have stalemates and then never move forward because you can't make a decision. So just as the church needs a leader, the family needs a leader too. Otherwise, you can get stagnant or stalemated, and nothing happens. Yeah, exactly. So C.S. Lewis kind of makes that argument for uh, why you need something like male headship. Like you need someone who is ultimately responsible. That doesn't mean they have to decide everything individually, personally. It doesn't mean they should be a tyrant, but it means somebody has to like the buck stops somewhere uh, when you've kind of talked an issue through and someone has to make a decision. Well, likewise, this is the same reason why, uh, why you need Peter, why you need the Pope, why you need someone in the church who has kind of final responsibility. At the local level, that's the bishop. But then the question is, well, what about at the global level? What at the level of the entire church? Because we see these issues very quickly uh, that involve the entire church. And and we see Peter playing a pretty important role in settling those. So I, there seems to be good theological reasons to believe in that, as well as really practical ones. And, and we see it, I think, in Matthew 16 itself. Uh, Jesus' questions... To the disciples, or first, who do men say the Son of Man is? And then they give these contradictory answers. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And that, uh, Fulton Sheen argues, is kind of the prefigurement of Protestantism. You leave it up to the individual followers of Christ, and they, they don't get it all right. They, they lead to these kind of different parties that believe in different things, or these kind of different denominations of followers, if you will that believe contradictory things, and all of the uh, answers have some error in them. But then he says to the Twelve, who do you say that I am? And they don't all start speaking at once. In fact, 11 of them are silent, but Peter speaks up on behalf of them. So you see there that there really is this sense baked in in the beginning, that it's not just left up to, like, a council, it's not just left up to all bishops everywhere, but there's a particular role in which Peter can speak for the Twelve. He can speak on behalf of the entire church. And that's pretty critical to what we mean when we're talking about the papacy. You know, it's interesting you brought up C.S. Lewis, who, you know, great writings, love reading his stuff. But he had the same blind spot that many Protestants do. Don't they? You know, it's funny how he, he mentions that, you know, there's got to be a head to make a decision. But when it comes to the Catholic Church or the papacy— that kind of gets backed off, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, what I was really struck by uh, reading some of his letters relating to Catholicism is he, you know, he tried to give some weight to Catholic thinking and to uh, Catholic tradition. You know, Lewis famously believed in some version of purgatory, uh, so he he really was open to a lot of Catholic ideas, but he didn't kind of accept the authority of the Church, except as a sort of like. Uh, teaching body of people who were devoted disciples. So he compares it in one of his letters to if, like, the followers of uh, Plato, I think it was, had had just formed, like, a group, like, as scholars of Plato just kind of, like, followed and said, here's what he taught, and then for thousands of years, they kind of carried <laughs> that on. 
And and that's kind of his vision of what the Catholic Church is, is just like this group of followers saying, yeah, here's what he taught us, and then passing that down from age to age and, and interpreting it. But that's not a good understanding of the Church, because it, it omits any sense of divine agency, that this is actually the Bride of Christ, that Christ forms of the Holy Spirit, leads the Church into all truth, as Jesus promised at the Last Supper. And so it's it's kind of remarkable you know, uh, in mere Christianity, Lewis famously says, you can't think of Jesus as just a good teacher. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, right? Right. Well, for the Church, Lewis falls into this exact same blind spot that he calls out uh, the people fall into with Christ. of saying, well, you know, the Church is a good teacher. Well, no, no, she's either the Bride of Christ, or she's something pretty heretical and apostate. And that's been true for 2,000 years. So there's not this category of just good teacher you can accept, like the Platonic Society, because she claims to be so much more than that. So she's either much more or much, much less than that. Um, and so it's, it's funny, because like in the book, I just kind of point out, like Lewis's own argument works really well against his position on Catholicism. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that part of it, actually, because I, I really enjoy reading C.S. Lewis's stuff, but it's, it's interesting to see that blind spot. I mean, to think that the Bride of Christ would be left to a group of people who, with no direction, to just guide it. Be like starting your own business and cashing out and saying, you know what, you guys just figure it out. I'm not going to create a successor. You guys just figure it out, and I'm sure everything will be fine. Yeah. Peter Crave talks about this in one of his books, and I I kind of allude to it in, in my book, that a lot of the Protestant views of the Church are exactly what you would get uh, if Jesus didn't do anything. Like, if Jesus didn't leave a church, and his followers just tried to, like, come up with some sort of structure or body or grouping, you would get promises. And and even in Lewis's description, kind of the platonic society that he describes, yeah, that would be like if Plato didn't <laughs> structure a body. And if he, you know, since he's not divine, he couldn't send, like, a Holy Spirit to guide it. Well, so that's kind of... Uh, the Protestant view on the church. Like like I said, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And the question that I think Protestants have to grapple with is, in what way uh, does that teaching play out in my understanding of the church? Like, what makes my vision of the church any different than if Jesus hadn't done anything about the church? Because I think the risk is that you, you really do kind of nullify the words of Jesus, where it, it stops meaning anything. When he says, I will build my church. It means nothing more than if he said, I won't build my church, uh, you do it. But that it ends up meaning the same conclusion or the same, it looks the same uh, one way or the other, which is a pretty big red flag. That that's not what Jesus must have meant. No, and, and you know, one part you talk about the visible and invisible church. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's, I mean, it's, it's a great cop-out to all of a sudden make the church an invisible church, because then you can do whatever you want, right? Yeah, so uh, the so-called Morning Stars of the Reformation are Jan Hus uh, and and John Wycliffe. And these are the guys before Martin Luther, who are heretics, to put it bluntly, who are really influential on Luther. And what they have in common is this view that the Church is only the saved. And so there's the true Church known only to God. This is sometimes called the Invisible Church. And it's all the saved people, wherever they are. And so if you're not ultimately saved, you're not part of that church, even if you're a priest or a bishop or the pope or whatever. And uh, one of the major problems with this view 
Well, there's a couple. First is that Jesus doesn't speak of the church like this. He never describes the church as an invisible collection of the saved. He really emphasizes the visibility of the church when he describes it as a city on a hill and a light that can't be put under a bushel basket. Yeah, an invisible light doesn't do you much good, does it? Exactly. (laughs) Invisible light doesn't seem to mean anything. Like, again, (laughs) it it seems to have stripped the meaning out of Jesus' words, where you're left with kind of a a meaningless mush where you say, well, what what difference does it make whether he said this or the opposite of this, since you're going to believe the opposite? Right. Uh, so, yeah, he stresses the structured, like, city-like nature of the church and the visibility of it being on a hill or, like, no, you can't put it under a bushel basket. And, and then the second problem with it is that you just see the lived experience of the early church. Jesus calls the apostles, and one of them is Judas, who, by all appearances, doesn't seem to be saved. At the end of John 6, Jesus says very bluntly, did I not call you twelve and one of you is a devil? So we can't say the church or even the clergy or the hierarchy or the apostles are, are just the collection of the saved, because clearly uh, we see some number of the unsaved in that. In Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50, uh, Jesus memorably compares the kingdom of God on earth to a net that contains both good and bad fish. Like, we have to say some number of unsaved people are part of the church on earth, because Jesus says that, and there's not really getting around it. He doesn't have two churches, a visible one and an invisible one. Uh, there's, there's only ever a reference to the church, meaning like this organized, visible, structured body. And this other thing about this invisible collection of the saved is, is just pure Protestant invention uh, that, that can't be defended very well scripturally. Well, and you talk a lot about Scripture, and I and I appreciate you kind of hold off to the end, talking about you know Peter getting the keys of the kingdom, and you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. You know, so you go into you know how scripturally throughout the Scriptures we hear and we see really that Peter is the lead, and that the papacy is you know if not mentioned directly, indirectly, and like in Luke twenty two about the Last Supper discourse, right? Yeah, so rather than starting with Matthew 16, I mean, I've mentioned it a few times in this interview, but yeah. I think it's where people expect the conversation to always go. And you're right, like, I start with Luke 22 at the Last Supper, when Jesus, is, he confronts the apostles who are debating about which of them is the greatest, and he explains that they're not supposed to, you know, lord their authority over others, but rather, the one who leads should be as the one who serves, and he gives himself as an example. Now, make no mistake, he is not saying you are not leaders of the church, because they clearly are. And in fact, he says it'll be judging uh, in heaven. He talks about them being on heavenly thrones. So he even aggrandizes, if you will, the kind of authority that he's given to show them just how serious this leadership that he's given them is. But at the same time, he challenges what that leadership looks like. It looks like service. And here again, the, the obvious model is to the family. Like to be the head of your family isn't to be the dictator in the home. It's really to lay down your life for your family, to serve them in a leadership kind of role. Like this idea of servant leadership isn't just kind of a nice idea. This is the gritty day-to-day reality of parenthood, of of marital love, and the rest. But then in the midst of all of this, he then singles out one of the twelve, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift all of you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, 
strengthen your brethren. So in the middle of saying, here is this spiritual problem facing all 12, Jesus doesn't say, I'm putting up, you know, a spiritual barrier so Satan can't get in. He doesn't even say, I'm going to pray for all 12 of you. He instead says he's going to pray for Peter. And then, even though, despite this, Peter's going to deny him three times, he entrusts Peter with this duty that when you turn back, strengthen your brethren. So in other words, he's just said, leadership should be service of the other. And he's called all of the apostles to serve the church. And then he calls one of the apostles to serve the other apostles. What he's doing there is showing that Peter is the head of the apostles, but in this Christian sense, not in the sense that like we want to expect him like a pagan warlord, that for Peter to be head of the apostles is to be, as we now say, servant of the servants of God, that he's called to serve the other 11, just as they're called to serve the whole church. Well, and you need a head of the church, and he acknowledges, right, and, and you know, Peter uh, denies him three times, which is probably worse than any pope's done, and we've had bad popes. Uh, we need to make sure that we understand how important it is to have have a head at the top of the church, that this isn't a democracy where all of a sudden now, like like our election, we got we need to go recount the votes because we think there's been some kind of scam going on. Yeah, so it's striking, you know, Athenian democracy existed and, and collapsed, for that matter, uh, before the time of Christ. So it wasn't like, even on a human level, people were unaware of what a democracy was. They'd seen republics, they'd seen democracy, and yet Jesus comes and proclaims a kingdom. And a kingdom in which, of course, he's ultimately the head, but a kingdom in which he, he puts people that he's appointed that are not democratically chosen, like no one voted for the apostles, right? And so the leadership structures in the church are not democratic. We see this in the book of Acts as well. The only time we really see the people choose, there's two examples. One of them is the people choosing the deacons, but that isn't enough because then the apostles have to lay hands on them for them to become deacons. Right. The other instance in which we see something like democracy is when the people choose Barabbas over Jesus. And I think there you, you see kind of the danger of having an overly democratic vision of the church, that if you leave it up to popular imagination or popular opinion, that's not going to go in a good direction, and it never really has. So the, the thing we as Americans, I think, especially have to dispel is the idea that the church is going to look more or less like the U.S. does. And, and we see this in kind of the crazier forms of American religion, you know, like Mormonism, for instance, calls the head of their church the president. And you can just see how how thoroughly American that vision of what the church ought to be uh, is. Well, and in smaller, maybe less extreme ways, I think we can all fall into that, of imagining uh, that the church is going to look more or less like a democracy. And, and we often behave that way. And Jesus does not speak that way at all. So yeah, I think it's, it's good to recognize that and sort of adjust for that, push against our own biases, all of our own kind of presuppositions. But the second thing you mentioned is, that this is not because Peter is so great. Like, Peter is going to deny Christ three times. All of the times when you see Jesus affirming Peter's special mission and his authority, it, it is if invariably or nearly invariably coupled with some reminder of his inadequacy. So, for instance, in Matthew 16, he calls him the rock, and then a few verses later says, get behind me, Satan, you've become a stumbling rock for me. Uh, that he's, he's making a play on Peter's new name to show his own, like, the way that he gets in the way. In Luke 22 that I just mentioned, like, 
he talks about the special role Peter has to serve the others in the middle of kind of hinting at the fact that he's about to deny him three times. Uh, in John 21, you see another allusion to the threefold denial of Peter in this threefold affirmation, do you love me more than me? So time and time and time again, when Jesus points to the Petrine or papal office, he does so with a full, like, eyes wide open recognition, like the Pope is not going to be worthy of the thing that I'm going to give him. And, you know, he's just letting us know that at the outset. And that's okay, because Jesus still does it anyway. Like, none of us are worthy to the things we've been called to by Christ. And, and so he just makes sure we're not going to make that mistake kind of out the gate. And so when we see, you know, Pope Francis make statements that obviously um, are not, you know, changing the teachings of the church, but are disconcerting when we when we hear about, you know, divorced people who have not received annulments, receiving communion and different things along those lines, the Amazon Synod, we, we need to understand that we still need a pope. We, we can't, you know, like when the weather gets bad, you don't jump out of the boat, you stay in the boat. And and let let the Lord let the Holy Spirit, who's really in charge, lead this lead this right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Pope can do a lot to muddle things, or he can do a lot to clarify things, and that's kind of between him and God in a certain way. I mean, don't get me wrong; there can be a role to kind of call that out. We see that again with the very first Pope in Galatians two. Uh, Paul stands up to Peter for muddling doctrines that Peter believes and Peter has affirmed, and that he's not kind of practicing what he preaches. Uh, so we see even that problem of just like the Pope being unclear or maybe giving a scandalous personal witness. Again, all the way back to the very first Pope, all the way back to the Pope from which all other Popes kind of derive their authority. Uh, that's not a new problem with Pope Francis. It's a problem that goes back 2,000 years. Well, I can't encourage people enough to go out and get the book because I think, one, it it, it doesn't hide what's going on currently. But it say it tells and really gives the teachings of the church and the scriptural backing of why the papacy is so important. How can people get the book, Joe? Uh, yeah, so the easiest ways would be either shop.catholic.com, which is Catholic Answers uh, like store, or if you just go to Amazon. I think it's currently out, but they're they're going to restock it soon. Like it, it sold out recently, and they're they're getting another shipment in very soon. And just real quick, uh, just want to give you. Quick plug, what is Holy Family School of Faith? What do they do? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So we lead people to Jesus through Mary, uh, through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary. We have uh, a beautiful daily rosary. You can get it at dailyrosary.net. Uh, we also have a, a weekly Catholic podcast, uh, castpod.com. Uh, 